Hello, hello. Welcome to Highbrow. My name is Mina and I'm your host today. And I swear I was going to catch everyone up on my trip to Italy, but then the episode that I pushed out was the interview I did with Aubrey Gordon, which came in very last minute, but super thankful, grateful, blessed that she was able to appear because she's a very busy person um, and she's writing her third book. So um, I was really excited to have that in the schedule, obviously prioritize that. And then um, I had like a wedding dress expansion podcast, which um, those usually come out the same week as the week that I produced the video. So obviously that had to come out. And yeah, I just haven't had the time to talk about my trip to Italy, which was um, interesting to say the least. I don't know if I'm a good solo traveler. I feel like I am definitely someone who needs conversation when I'm out and about. I am someone who likes to experience experiences with other people. I also like having my picture taken sometimes and I didn't really have my picture taken when I was there because I just, I get too awkward to ask people and I also didn't want to put my phone down because that also makes me feel awkward but also because I just kept hearing about like European shoplifters um I mean not shoplifters European like pickpocketers and how you're never supposed to like hold your phone out and because someone with a scooter is gonna just gonna grab your phone um I don't know if that's just like an overinflated thing that American tourists believe because I don't know I can't imagine that Milan is more dangerous than New York City But yeah, I just like didn't really want to put my phone down anywhere. Also because I'm in a different country. I'm in a foreign country. So, and I don't speak Italian. And so I feel like if someone did steal my phone, that would be like a really big disaster versus if someone stole my phone here, it would be a disaster, but I could just like figure it out. Like I know my geography. I have like that internal GPS, like New York is a grid system anyway. So very easy to figure out where you are. And then, you know, like I know where the Apple store locations are. I know how to get home. Um, things are not that difficult versus if I lost my phone in a foreign country, I probably would have a meltdown. I would not know what to do, especially if I was by myself, which I was. So I don't want to put my phone down. And also the thing is like when I ask people to take photos of me, usually they don't know like my angle or they they don't understand what I'm trying to do because I think a lot of tourists like to take photos understandably of the landscape or specific um, architectural buildings that they're standing in front of. But for me, I'm really trying to take a photo of my outfit (laughs) um, in a foreign location. You know, and I'll like take my own photos of the nature and the buildings and the art like I'll take it with me not in it but if I'm gonna be in a photo I kind of want to be able to like see myself and not have me be like an ant in a gigantic landscape photo if you know what I mean but I don't want to be like annoying about it so I don't say anything and I just like ask them to take the photo and then they do and then I don't like it and then it's like really awkward because I'm like do I ask someone else but they're still in my vicinity and I don't want them to see that I'm asking someone else um So yeah, in the end, I just don't really get a lot of photos taken of me if I'm not with a friend or already with someone I know. Um, But that that isn't like the downside of the trip. Obviously, that was just sort of like one of those things that I kind of wish I had someone with me to do to help me out with. But um, yeah, I think it's just like a little strange. I did really enjoy being able to create my own schedule 
like being able to do whatever I wanted to do and not have to worry about accommodating someone else or like a group of people. Because the last time I was in Italy, it was with my family for my cousin's wedding. She got married on the Amalfi Coast and it was a very beautiful wedding. I got food poisoning during that trip. So I don't have like the most amazing memories of being in Italy, but um, it was a very beautiful wedding. But at the same time, because we were literally with like so much of my family, it was just like a lot of like coordination, trying to figure out like what we all wanted to do versus I think when you're like by yourself, you don't have to like have the extra stress of trying to coordinate a schedule. Like you kind of can just go with the flow. Actually, you know, even though I say that, that's not necessarily true because I was really stressed out because I was only in Florence for 24 hours um, because I got flown into Milan and I got flown out of Milan. And when I got to Milan, I had to take the train to Florence like pretty much immediately. And um, then I was scheduled to take the train back from Florence like literally the next day. And that was like not my scheduling, but that was the situation. So I was trying to figure out like what I was going to do in Florence within these 24 hours. And I did go to the Uffizi Gallery, which is beautiful. I highly recommend going there. If you have not been to Florence and you want to, it's this beautiful art gallery, a lot of like Renaissance art. Obviously, um, they have a really great Botticelli, Botticelli room with the, um, the Venus, <laughs> the, the famous Venus art piece. And yeah, it was like really nice. I also went like super early because I didn't have again much time. So I like got myself up to get there at when it opened, which was 8.15. And I my bodily clock actually like woke myself up at like six in the morning because I was so stressed about being able to like do everything. Because last time I was also in Europe, I literally slept until 2 p.m. because of the jet lag. And I was like, I don't have time. I don't have time to be jet lagged. I have 24 hours in Florence. Like we cannot reduce that by even 23 hours. But I didn't get to go see the Boboli Gardens, which is something I really did want to see, which is fine. Like, I'll just come back again at another time in my life. <laughs> maybe maybe soon if I'm lucky. But um, yeah, there are these, these beautiful gardens, or allegedly, I didn't get to see them at all. So um, allegedly beautiful gardens. And I had put it in my schedule. Like, I even bought tickets online while I was in America as I was planning this because I was like, I have a Mission Impossible schedule. So basically, I got to Milan at around 1 p.m. My train from the Milan train station departed at 3 p.m. And by the way, it took like an hour to get from the Milan airport to the train station. So I had like a little hour for lunch at the station. And then I was supposed to arrive in Florence at 5 p.m. And Florence is like, Florence is really small. And I was like looking at my Google Maps and I was like, oh my God, it would only take me 20 minutes to drop off my luggage and then go to um, the Boboli Gardens by car. And what I didn't realize, or what I guess I didn't remember since um, I was with family and I, I was luckily not coordinating any of the car service that uh, the, the bride and groom so um, kindly provided for us, I didn't know that they don't have Uber in Italy, or if they do, no one uses it. So the only way to get around really by car is by taxi. And I could not get a taxi for an hour. 
when I was at the Florence train station because literally when I got to Florence, it was pouring rain. So already like probably not a garden vibe. It was pouring. And then I got out at the wrong exit. And so I had to walk around outside of the train station to get to the exit where the taxi line was. And so it was soaked. And then I had to wait for an hour in the taxi line because it was like wrapping around. It was like wrapping around the building because everyone was trying to get a taxi. And yeah, it just took forever. I missed my Bubbly Gardens appointment. And yeah. (laughs) And then the next day when I had some time before I had to get back on the train, I tried to go again. And I just like didn't have time because the line was so long and because I didn't have a ticket because it was sort of like a last minute thing where I was like, oh, maybe I'll have time. Um, I just like looked at the line and I was like, yeah, I definitely won't have time. And the thing is, the Bubbly Gardens are hidden behind, I think it's the the Pitti Palace, which is another museum um, that I heard really good things about. Didn't get to go. But yeah, it's behind that. So you can't even see the gardens from outside the gardens. <laughs> so sad. But other than that, Italy was great. Um, the food was really good. I got to go to lake como and i got to lake como through a bus tour and i've never really done a bus tour by myself before or ever i don't think i've ever done a bus tour um and it was an interesting experience for sure because i got on this bus at like seven in the morning and they drove an hour and a half to the town of como which is on lake como and they were like you have an hour and a half in como And then after, we would have to get back, um, we have to meet back at a meeting point and we would get on a ferry and then the ferry would take us to Bellagio and Verena, not Verona, Verena. And Verena was actually my favorite, but the structure of the bus tour is kind of difficult and I think if you want to go visit Como, Lake Como, you should just get a car, um... Or figure out another, I think you can actually get there by train. It's just like, it takes longer and there's like transfers and everything. But I think it's more worth it to not have a person telling you that you can only spend like this amount of time on this place and this amount of time somewhere else. Because I honestly would have just rather had stayed in Verena like the whole time. And we only got 45 minutes there because it was um, the last stop on our tour and it's also the smallest town so there's not a lot of things to do there but what was really nice is they had like a pier and there were people swimming and the previous two places that we went to there was no swimming like no place to like jump off and it's beautiful like Lake Como is beautiful the water is like super super um kind of like greenish tealish color it's super beautiful it was super hot and I was like oh my god I would love to have just spent an entire day swimming around here but that wasn't part of the tour (laughs) so didn't get that opportunity I feel like I'm really like talking mad shit about Italy it's it honestly like was a good time I think that it would have been better if I was with other people personally I have friends who are like super into solo traveling and I feel like if that's something that you're into then it would be a great place to solo travel it's like super easy to get around um I felt like it was relatively safe. I 
was in, again, Florence and Milan. Can't speak for the rest of Italy. But I walked a lot like at night, like coming back from places. That is actually one thing that I can do by myself. I can eat a meal by myself. Like I don't mind going out to food by myself, which I know is like what a lot of people say is their um, hesitation for doing solo traveling. But I actually love eating by myself. It's the experiences. It was the tourist experiences. Like I went to the Duomo rooftop in Milan and of course everyone who was there was a tourist because it's a very touristy attraction. And it was just like a lot of families, a lot of couples and it kind of felt like a little isolating because I didn't actually see that many solo travelers and I felt like I was kind of like the only person by myself. Uh, which was a little sad. I also tripped and ate shit on the rooftop. Like, because there's a place where you stand close to the exit that's sloped. And I was like walking on it. And then I just like rolled my ankle and fell. And it was really embarrassing. <laughs> Especially when you're by yourself. Because, I mean, there was like a nice like lady who offered to help me up. But um, yeah, it was it was kind of weird. Anyways... Solo traveling though, I think it's worth it. I think it's worth to do at least one time in your life. Like I'm really glad I did this experience and I probably will have to do more experiences like this because uh, once again, this trip was technically a work trip. So um, a lot of the times the work trips that I've gone to, like they don't give me a plus one. And so if someone wanted to come with me, they would have to pay for their own airfare and they could usually probably stay with me in the hotel. But like... It's expensive to get around airfare and also a lot of events in entertainment, fashion, whatever, they're super last minute planned. So I found out I was going to Italy like three days before I actually went. And my mom actually was looking at flights because she was like, oh, like, what if we go together? And the flights were so expensive, <laughs> like, as you can imagine. Um, so yeah, I'm probably going to still have to solo travel for work, which is totally fine, like, I'm still lucky to be able to travel. I think if you want to do it for fun, it's worth doing once at least. You know, it just teaches you how to be okay and comfortable with yourself and with silences. Um, actually, you know, even though I say that, okay, I'm like realizing this entire episode is just me contradicting myself constantly. And I'm so sorry for anyone listening because I feel like this is just getting like, this is just giving whiplash. Um, but... I was able to make some friends while I was traveling. And I guess I didn't clarify this. The work part of the trip was only for the first three days. And then I was in Italy for myself for the following four days um, because I didn't want to travel with like twice long distance within 72 hours. And I also hadn't been to Milan before, which is why I wanted to extend my stay. And that's why um, I was... I had the time to do all these things because also usually if you're on a work trip, you don't really have time to do any touristy things. Like they really make sure you're only there for work. Um, but I did have a lot of time in Milan specifically. I was in Florence for work. That's why I had no time in Florence. Okay. Anyways, um, I was able to make some friends, which was fun. I third wheeled a couple different couples for one of my dinners. Actually, I think it was my first night in Milan oh no sorry my second night in Milan my second night in Milan I went to this like fancy little restaurant took myself out to dinner and they seated this American couple next to me and 
this couple, they were both retired. They were from San Diego and they were super, super sweet. They actually started the conversation with me because they said I reminded them of their granddaughter, which was really nice. And then I ended up talking to them for the following um, two or so hours. Like they were just a really engaging couple and I really loved that experience and I was like thinking to myself afterwards when I left I was like if I was with someone I might not have met these two lovely people I might not have had this kind of conversation because it would have been one of those things where maybe they would have said something offhand and then you know I would like say something back but then we would kind of go back to our own dinner parties whereas I think because I was like alone and I don't want to say they took pity on me, but I think because they were like retired and traveling, the energy I got from this couple was like they were very relaxed and they were open to new experiences and talking to people. And so maybe actually they would still have wanted to talk if I was with other people and maybe I would have been the problem as in I would have not really focused on other people in the restaurant per se. The other two couples I met, they were younger. Um, I third wheeled a couple on the bus trip to like Como because they were Australian and I overheard them talking and because I studied in Australia I like intercepted their conversation it was like oh are you Australian and um they were really sweet we basically like did the rest of the tour as a trio I just felt kind of weird about it because I was like I don't know if you guys are trying to do something romantic and I'm just here um but they kept like inviting me along so I was like, okay, maybe I'm just overthinking it. Um, and then this other couple that I met, um, the girl actually watched my videos. And so she like came up to me and she was like really sweet. So then we went to get uh, food like the next day by ourselves. And yeah, I think those are really great experiences. I have always felt a weird way about making friends on vacation because as a kid, like when I was eight or nine, my family and I, we would go to this uh, beach every year as our uh, vacation. And my parents would like use all their credit card points on the hotel and we would stay there for like three to four days. And we would always stay at the same place. And... It was pretty often that I would like meet someone new who was like my age. We'd be playing at the pool because, you know, we're kids and I don't know, kids love playing at the pool. So that's what I did as a kid and it'd be really fun. And then inevitably I would have to leave or they would have to leave and then I never saw them again. And we would try to like exchange addresses because there were no phones and there's no like social media at that time. So the only way to be in contact with anyone was through snail mail. And yeah, it's like really hard to keep up with people as a child through letters. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm the problem again, but I feel like I exchanged a couple letters with these girls and then at a certain point they kind of just like I stopped or they stopped and we stopped being friends in that kind of capacity and it's always made me sad even though I think it's an inevitable part of life but I think growing up in a digital age partially because you know once I was like 11 I was on social media so I think nowadays we're so used to being always connected with people and 
even someone who you've only met like a couple times like years ago, you might still have them on Instagram or Snapchat or Facebook. You know, it's like these services are out there to connect people and to create these like long-standing connections. But in the end, you don't really have a connection with them if you're not actively still talking to them. And I felt myself being in these kinds of situations where I had a friend and like years ago when I was living in a different place and then I would move or they would move and I won't see them. I won't talk to them for like seven years, but I'll still see them posting on Instagram. And it's this weird, it's like a super weird phenomenon where it's like, I know what you had for breakfast yesterday, but I haven't talked to you in like seven years. And it's made me really uncomfortable Every so often I do like unfollow people who I haven't really talked to and I know that's like a big faux pas for a lot of um, people my age because it's like, I don't know, a lot of people take it offensively, which I can understand, but at the same time, like I don't want to be following like thousands of people on my social media because that's too much noise. That's way too much noise. I don't need to know that many people and what they're doing. But then also it's sort of like, I feel like, these kinds of social media ties give us a false sense of connection that's not real because if I haven't talked to you I don't know you like I don't know the kind of person you are and the type of person that you appear on social media is not necessarily the type of person that I knew when we were friends like in real life and that's like totally fine because I think everyone kind of puts on some kind of facade on social media it's just the nature of these platforms it's really really hard to be like super authentic because obviously you're not going to show every side of your life you're not going to show the boring stuff you're not going to show the stuff that's like not aesthetic usually and you're not going to show like times when you're feeling down or when things are not going your way usually um and so yeah, it, it just like made me feel really weird and icky and I think I'm always open to reconnecting with a friend. I had a friend who I literally like, <laughs> we got into a fight for that lasted like four years and we had each other like blocked on social media and then we um, ended up reconnecting in a really random way because we both moved to New York City at the same time and um, and now we're still friends and that was like super nice and super authentic and organic but I think with social media sometimes it like forces social connections that feel inauthentic to me and the way that I handle my relationships in my life um but yeah I mean obviously like I'm still always trying to rehabilitate my relationship with social media trying to figure out a formula that works that was just how I was feeling like a couple of years ago. And so I did end up doing like a deep cleanse of my social media where I was like, I kind of only want to see people who I actually talk to on here because yeah, again, it's like, I don't want to know what you had for breakfast if I haven't talked to you in years. But yeah, I mean, I also know other people who like don't care at all in that way. Like they don't really look at people's stories. So they're not like overwhelmed by the amount of people that they're connected with or they enjoy the connection. They're not like as uh, overwhelmed like I am. Um, or I have some friends who actually follow no one. <laughs> they have like a super skinny ratio. And I think that's fine too. I think it's a weird thing where we have like these social codes prescribed onto 
the way we're supposed to use social media and it's like so unwritten and yeah it's it's like basically like a form of social media etiquette that is unwritten unspoken about and people are super passive aggressive like I remember I unfollowed someone and it wasn't even because I didn't like them again it was one of those things where I was like I haven't talked to you you know I don't know if we will ever talk again not to be rude but like we don't live near each other anymore and if you are visiting you can text me you have my number and that's totally fine but I've heard from like mutual friends who I am closer with like oh this person's like really offended um that you unfollowed them and I was like how is that so offensive like we're not actually close friends like I'd be offended if like my best friend unfollowed me for with no explanation but just like the fact that you are harboring that kind of resentment towards me over a decision that actually doesn't have to do anything with whether or not I think you're a cool person and the fact that you haven't talked to me about it it kind of proves my point that we're not that good friends (laughs) like if you can't talk to me about how you're feeling about me so why did I even mention this? Oh yeah, it was like uh, <laughs> because of the friends I made in Italy and it like kind of s- spurred me on this thought process about how I used to uh, make friends at on vacation all the time and then they all fell through. I'm usually not someone who does my nails regularly, though I've always wanted to be. I just don't have the time to go to the nail salon and also it can get so expensive over time. So when Olive and June reached out to work with me, I was so excited because they have this package called the Manny System, which includes everything you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. You can customize your box with six different polishes and the polishes are really good quality and long lasting. When applied correctly, they don't chip and last seven days or more, which comes down to just $2 a manicure. The box also includes an award-winning cuticle serum and an acetone-free polish remover pot. When I used to do my nails, they'd always turn out a little janky looking, especially my right hand because I'd have to paint it with my non-dominant hand. Something I also unexpectedly love about the Manny system is it comes with a wide handle called Poppy that can be applied to your nail polish brush, giving you way more control. Visit oliveandjune.com slash Mina for 20% off your first Manny system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D. J-U-N-E dot com slash M-I-N-A for 20% off your first Manny system. When I was in Italy, I was reading this book called Party of the Century and it's about Truman Capote. And he is the author of Breakfast at Tiffany's and Cold Blood. Um, I've only read Breakfast at Tiffany's by him. And I think that he is a very interesting person because he was kind of like the most successful social climber, you know, until he wasn't. Um, His downfall and death was kind of tragic to read. But um, the whole thing about the book is that it revolves around this party that he threw, I think in 1966. And it was the black and white ball. It was a major gala event, personally organized by him. So it wasn't like sponsored or anything like most gala events are today and it was just like full of a-list celebrities it had been in the works for like months beforehand and it was like the talk of the town the talk of the socialite town like everyone was like thinking about like am I gonna get invited like has anyone seen the guest list um because Truman was so popular and going to his party would be such a status symbol 
And it was just really interesting because it explored a lot of like 1960s socialite dynamics. And I think because I'm watching Succession now too, um, I don't know, my head is just like up rich people's ass, like the concept of rich people at the moment. And it's just interesting to see how certain narratives have shifted. So I don't even know if that makes sense. Okay, something that like I read that was really interesting is that they talk about this thing called the social register. It's like a database um, and it was founded by this entrepreneur, Lewis Keller, in 1887. And the point of the social register was that it would collect and publish the names and addresses of the most socially prominent people in America. And the register famously did not approve people from entertainment. And so if you married an actor or actress, it was grounds for expulsion. Like this was like a severely old money kind of system. Um, there is this person, Charles Alden Black, who I've never heard of, but he was on the register um, because I guess his family was really famous in, not famous, but you know, uh, what's the word? Prestigious? I don't know. Whatever is the word that old money people use. Um, but his family was that. Had a good reputation. There we go. And he was dropped after he married Shirley Temple, who was at a point in her life, the number one actress in Hollywood. Like, that's so insane. Like, I feel like nowadays, like, Hollywood, top performers of the music industry, etc., A-listers, like, these are the people who are called A-listers, not like some random family with a ton of property in Connecticut, you know? But I guess, like, at the time acting, performing, and whatnot was seen as, like, not uh, respectable because there's just been, like, kind of a narrative throughout uh, the entertainment industry where a lot of, like, people who worked in entertainment were, like, into um, sex workers because they were selling their body in a way, uh, which is interesting how times have shifted in that sense also. Okay, actually, not to go on another tangent, but... Sarah Jessica Parker, they did a profile of her in The New Yorker recently, and it was really good. Like, I really enjoyed reading it. I'm also a fan of Sex and the City, so I think that's, like, also why I enjoyed it more. Because they do talk about a little bit about Sex and the City. It is mostly about her. But she came across as very humble and very appreciative and very, like, not like what I assume Leonardo DiCaprio was like. For example, she has this store where she sells her shoe brand, which is called SJP Collection, and they have a location in the West Village. And the journalist who was covering her visited the store, and apparently Sarah Jessica Parker works in the store like once a week. Like she just like works there in retail. Um, And she was like helping a customer find the right shoe. And she was like helping put on the shoe and... You know, like just doing a retail job, which is very bizarre to think of a major celebrity like Sarah Jessica Parker doing that because of how actors and musicians and entertainment people have been so like lifted above the commoner class. Anyways, it was just interesting. Also, um, the journalist, oh, I can't remember who did the profile. I think it was like, I'll link the article, but... (laughs) And also in the article, she was talking about how um, Sarah Jessica Parker's mother, she's not a nepotism baby, like her family um, lived in Ohio, they're like middle class, but um, her mother like always told her 
that uh, she should never think of herself above anyone else because it goes against what an actor is supposed to do for people, which is you're supposed to perform for people. Like it is in a way a service job. Um, So I thought that was really interesting. But going back to this stupid social register, no surprise, the register was also racist and anti-Semitic. And the way that it was anti-Semitic was that it would um, request you to write down like your Christian name or something like that. So they weren't like blatantly like, oh, we're not going to have any Jewish people on this list. Uh, But that was kind of like a little indication for them to be like, oh, this person's Jewish. Okay, they're not going to be, or they're just, they're not Christian. They're not going to be on the register. And in the 1960s, this was like a time of social upheaval because there was a lot of uh, power to the youth. Like the youth were setting trends. The youth were the ones who were considered the cool kids now. And young people, also known as locomotives, were openly disdainful of the register. Following the register came the International Celebrity Register, which was founded by Cleveland Amory and Earl Blackwell. And this register included many biographies that were kind of like satirical. They were kind of like poking fun at the people who were on it. And it was a list of 2,240 contemporary celebrities. So also in the 60s, this was like a big change um, where celebrity culture was shifting a lot. And of course, like, you know, even though um, there were celebrities throughout the century and even before with um, Sarah Bernhardt. Yeah, with Sarah Bernhardt in like the Victorian era, it was these institutions that were finally piecing together that there is so much potential with um, celebrity marketing. So for instance, um, Amory, he was quoted to say, nobody looks at Mrs. Vanderbilt's pearls anymore. They just want to see what Marlena Dietrich is wearing. Also another list that was there to uh, rank people in terms of, you know, something frivolous, was the International Best Dressed List, which started in Europe, but was actually abandoned during World War II, and it wasn't until 1940 when fashion publicist Eleanor Lambert brought it to America. And the top spot on the International Best Dressed List was dubbed Best in Show. And publications all over the world, including the New York Times, printed the list every year. The thing is, to be on this list, you one had to be popular and well liked so people would vote for you but then also you had to be very wealthy because fashion editors suggested that the women on the list spent ten thousand to forty thousand dollars annually on clothes though parisian dressmakers estimated that you needed to spend at least fifty thousand dollars which is about nine hundred five thousand dollars in today's money also in the book they talk about these like socialites who were considered um Truman Capote's swans. The thing with like Truman is he would kind of collect women and they would be his swans. Like they were like all beautiful, rich women that he liked to surround himself with. And some of them include Babe Paley, Slim Hawks, Lee Radswell, who is um, I think Jackie Kennedy's sister, and Gloria Guinness. There was like another story that was featured in there that I really liked in this book. And it was, um, they mentioned this article that I tracked down and made a TikTok about, but it was called Everybody's Whispering, which was um, a feature in the New York Herald Tribune. And the writer was talking about vocal trends and how 
a lot of people were trying to imitate Jackie Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe's vocal inflections. And they were saying how the most um, fashionable voice is one that's like soft and simple and breathless, like a dear little girl who's been running and doesn't want to arrive late. And they also mentioned previous vocal trends, which I thought was really interesting. So they talk about Tallulah Bankhead. She was a stage actress and how she had this hoarse, booming voice that a lot of people tried to copy. And um, Catherine Hepburn's kind of nasally voice that was also uh, copied by a lot of young women. And when I posted this on TikTok, there are people who also brought on this idea of Kim Kardashian and Paris Hilton kind of setting these vocal trends with this like nasally, like uh, vocal fry and, you know, using the word like a lot in their sentences, like that taking off in the 2000s, 2010s, even still today. So, and also um, someone said Ariana Grande. I do like Ariana, but I've never been like a person among her fan base. So I don't really know what uh, people were doing to copy Ariana, but um, that was also a name that came up a lot in the comments. The craziest thing to me that I was realizing though, or maybe not the craziest thing, but one of the crazier things that I was realizing is that um, there are so many celebrities from this time period, from the 60s and 70s, who just like virtually disappeared in the cultural zeitgeist because I guess we didn't have social media to maintain their longevity. So for instance, like Penelope Tree and Twiggy, they were major cultural icons in the 60s. Like they were the it girls. But nowadays, I think people do know of Twiggy. Like I've heard people talk about Twiggy when they talk about 60s. I don't really hear that much about Penelope Tree. But also when I was like looking on Instagram because I was trying to find Twiggy's social media account and I found it and she only has like 74,000 followers. Like, I don't know. She's she's talked about kind of conceptually, but people don't, I don't think, follow her as actively as they do with, you know, um, some other social media influencers. Um, even Kim Kardashian, I, she has been around for a long time. Like, I think it's so impressive that she's been able to stay culturally relevant for this many years because she used to be like Paris Hilton's assistant or something. And Paris Hilton in the 2000s for me was like this major, major icon. People were obsessed with Paris Hilton. And I think Paris Hilton still has like a large fan base. She has a lot of followers Like people still follow what she's doing. But compared to the kind of cultural hold she had um, in the early 2000s, it's just not the same. Whereas I think Kim Kardashian has been pretty consistent ever since she rose up to fame. Also, another thing about Paris is um, this one editor I know who works at this like youthful magazine. Um, she said that they were debating on whether or not Paris Hilton should be a cover girl for the magazine, which is like, for me, that would be a no brainer. Well, for me, like in 2007, because Paris Hilton is the girl, but like the concern that they were uh, sharing with me is that they don't know if like young people these days really care about Paris Hilton anymore. And maybe young people don't even care about Kim. I guess Kim is kind of like, people care about her in like a large cultural standpoint, but I don't know if like generation alpha necessarily care about her because of that kind of age gap disparity. I think actually what will probably end up happening is that her kids kind of like overtake her in this uh, cultural hierarchy game um but they will be kardashian nonetheless <laughs> so yeah i don't know i also read this um article on mixed feelings which um it's this uh 
like Gen Z kind of social platform. They have a newsletter that I follow. They also have a Discord and yeah, it's like my friend Mian's baby. I interviewed Mian for my magazine podcast uh, a couple episodes back. So if you want to know more about it, I mean, you can look it up. It's mixedfeelings.earth. But also she is a much better uh, person to pitch it because it is her baby. But anyway, so uh, in the newsletter, they talk about this idea of the it girl, right? And the New Yorker did a whole profile on it girls like a couple months back and it was like a huge topic. But in the Mixed Feelings article, they were talking about how the it girl doesn't exist anymore in the way that we've known her to be since like the 1920s when Clara Bow uh, was deemed the it girl. And that was because she was in this movie called It, which describes a girl with an it factor. And so her character was the it girl, but then, you know, that inevitably led to her kind of getting that kind of title because she played this character. Anyways, love Clara, but... um. Yeah, the term has just transformed. I think it girl is more of like a label that people call themselves, but it's not necessarily a label that a culture gives any particular person anymore. And if they do, there's always like naysayers or people who exist in different spheres of influence on social media who are like, I don't even know who that is. I have no idea who that is. Um, I remember like I was talking to someone who had no idea who Emma Chamberlain was. And I thought that was pretty amazing because I feel like in my sphere, she's a well-known name. And especially I think being a YouTuber, like YouTubers just know who other big YouTubers are. But um, someone who's not necessarily on the internet in the same way as I am could not know who that is. There's this really good quote in the article. I'll read it out to you. The Devil Wears Prada era monoculture has fractured. We are siloed within our own algorithmic preferences, but still curiously nostalgic for some semblance of hierarchy. Gatekeepers of the fashion, music, and media industries have depended on certain old-fashioned notions of cool to stay relevant. Perhaps that is why we've clung to such dated descriptors, terms like it girl or indie, to separate our taste from the masses, even though the concept of mass culture is itself antiquated. And they continue saying... Um, Young people's consumer identities are fluid and rooted in a variety of cultural references. Uh, this critic, Safi Halanfara, who argues that Gen Z has created a new kind of selfhood called hyperreal individualism, she is quoted saying, Hyperreal individualism is where the original references are largely illegible or incoherent, but the individual wishes to define themselves and create an identity around their own disparate tastes and styles. Anyway, this doesn't mean we're any closer to understanding ourselves. We simply have more options to pick from, more microtrends to dress up as. The same goes for it girls. I think we've had subcultures in existence for a while, right? Like, even though we talk about the 60s mass culture around um, Twiggy and Penelope Tree and uh, before that, like, Babe Paley and Jackie Kennedy, etc. Like, there have still been other kind of underground cultural icons that people have thought represented them better. But the difference is now it's almost like the idea of being part of your own culture has overtaken the idea of being part of a mass culture. Like subcultures, being in a subculture is now more mainstream almost than being in the mainstream culture. Um, or at least in big cities, that seems to ring true. Like, inadvertently, I feel like I belong in a community of people in my locale who all like not the exact same things, but we all have shared interests and we all have shared 
people that we look up to or shared brands that we really like. Um, and so with my personal friend group, we really like Simone Rocha as a designer. Uh, we, some celebrities that we all really like, I guess, um, a space Angelina Jolie. Um, we have a lot of similar kinds of algorithms on social media and yeah, I think that for other people, they probably like different brands. They probably look up to different people. They like different kinds of music, like different celebrities. I mean, it's we've all always liked a lot of different things, but now we just have more options to choose from. Even if you think about music, the music industry. Right now, there's so many more artists than we've ever had in history. Like, I feel like in the 60s, who are people listening to? The Beatles, the Beach Boys. I mean, there were some more niche artists, definitely. But, um, you know, if you ran into someone at a party, they probably like similar music to you. Whereas now, if I run into someone at a party, it's like a 50-50 chance. I'm like, they might say something that I've never heard of in my life. They might like something that is just like whale sounds or shanties. You never know because... The internet has opened up like this portal of options and people are really able to find their way and express themselves in ways that hasn't been available before. At the same time, I think we're also overestimating the power of the internet to be accessed because so much of the internet is actually inaccessible. And I talked about this with Ryan in our episode where so much of like the old internet has been scrubbed. It takes forever to find information that doesn't have like good SEO uh, tagging because Google, if you use Google, which most people do, um, they prioritize like the most recent information and information that comes from like the biggest sources. But if you want more like niche stuff, it's harder to find. And that's something that I found really upsetting because I've come across some of the most identity-shaping um, information from Blogspots and from GeoCities accounts and from old MySpace pages, um, from things that I was able to find on Google relatively easily back in like 2012. So I'd actually argue that even though I think as a whole throughout history, um, we've trended towards being more individualized, I actually think that uh, that like sweet spot between like 2010 and 2014 had the most potential for um, leading to hyper individualism, if that makes sense. I also think that the way that the influencer market has shifted has also led to maybe decreased individualism because I mean, <laughs> and let's be honest, like I am guilty of this too because I got bills to pay, but I think that um, – there are like certain brands that everyone kind of works with because they have invested a lot in influencer marketing. And it's not to say that these are bad brands. Um, a lot of them are actually like really great, but it ends up kind of making everyone very similar in the way that they are all kind of like wearing the same products, buying the same kinds of products. And I also think that with how easy it is now to become well I wouldn't say it's easy to become an influencer but I think it's viewed as relatively easy to become an influencer and so what people do is they look at a person who's really popular and they're like 
oh, if I just copy what they're doing, then I can probably become really popular. And I don't think it's necessarily like that cut and dry. I think it can be as subtle as copying someone's video editing technique, which is what we saw with Emma Chamberlain and a lot of YouTube that mimicked her kind of editing style uh, that with like a lot of Ken Burns and et cetera. People weren't necessarily trying to grift her, but they were like, this is what audiences like. And if I want to be able to make money, if I want to grow, then I got to do what audiences like. And I think in the end, this kind of like performative pandering to get audiences, to get brand deals, it does lead to a culture of a lot of influencers, a lot of content creators being very similar to each other. So what I'm interested to know is the New Yorker says there are so many it girls, right? There are like so many fucking it girls to choose from. But how many of those people are very different from each other? Because also in the New Yorker article, they featured like a spread of influencers and content creators who have some kind of like it following and they like listed them out. They had like photos of them as just an example of how uh, the it girl category has expanded and how everyone can be an it girl these days. But looking at this spread, I was like, a lot of these people are friends with each other. A lot of these people are part of the same social scene in New York City. It's like, sure, they all have their own followings. And, you know, I also don't want to say that people are exactly the same. Like everyone has a unique character, unique personality, unique interests. But if you're part of the same social scene, you get invited to the same events, you go to do the same kinds of brand deals, you work with the same kind of brands, you go on the same kinds of influencer trips, you um, talk very similarly to your friends, you know, like if you share that many similarities, then does that change anything? Like does that kind of challenge the hyper individualism that we're apparently seeing on social media? I don't know. Like that's kind of why I love reading these little articles is because I'll read it and I'll be like, oh my God, yeah, this is so true. And then when I think about it more, I'm like, oh, actually, like, I don't know if this is necessarily true or it could be true, but what about something else? Like there could be multiple truths. And I think it's just like really fun to be able to engage with some really good writing. And so that's why I like to do these episodes and I like to um, share some of the things that I've read that I've really like thought about and that have really uh, changed the way that I understand um, topics in fashion, culture, society, etc. So with that said, I'll sign off now. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you have a lovely rest of your day and I'll catch you next Wednesday. Bye! You can keep up with the Highbrow Podcast on the Instagram, highbrow.pod. Highbrow is brought to you by Mina Lay, edited by Sophie Carter, music by Olivia Martinez, cover art is by Lindsay Mintz, and is part of the Audio Boom Network. Hey.